Okay, so ladies and gentlemen, I am excited to be here. Now, I, I need to make it quite clear. Having, we've, we've had a, such a fantastic start and I, I feel a bit nervous doing this arts thing with artsy people. You know, you guys, when it comes to performances, you guys know how to blow people away. So I'm a bit nervous. So, so just to tell you a bit about us, so we're hip-hop psych. Um, it consists of myself, Dr. Akim Sule, and a lady called Dr. Dr. Becky Insta. Doc, Dr. Becky Insta is just, she, she has a baby. Her baby is almost going to be one year old. So she's been taken out of circulation. So just to introduce us, Dr. Dr. Becky Insta is a neuroscientist. She's originally from Canada. Um, she was working in Cambridge. She was a um, um, doing this research. She was a research program director helping out with some very, very important adolescent study that they had in Cambridge. And we actually met in Cambridge. I, by the way, am a psychiatrist for my scenes. I'm actually a local consultant psychiatrist. I'm currently working in Cumbria, but I'm also a senior clinical tutor with the Clinical School of Medicine in Cambridge. And I'm also a research associate with Wilson College in Cambridge University. So in terms of how the idea started, I've always been interested in hip hop, but I'm originally from Nigeria. I grew up in Nigeria. I wanted to be a rapper, probably a gangster rapper, but unfortunately in Nigeria, you do what your parents tell you to do. So I studied medicine. I studied medicine because my handwriting is bad. That was the logic. So I did not stop studying medicine. Um, I've always been interested in hip hop. I've been interested in hip hop since, nine, since 1979. That's how long I've been involved in the culture. Now, in terms of how it started, it first started with my, um, I was doing my specialist registrar training in Oxford. And if, as if some of you don't know, there's a huge problem in recruiting medical students in psychiatry because they all want to be glorious physicians, they all want to be glorious surgeons, no one wants to do psychiatry. So I found out by using hip-hop lyrics, and I will explain how hip-hop is related to mental health, believe it or not, but I found out by using hip-hop lyrics, I got them interested. So I eventually ran into Becky, and I found out Becky, being a neuroscientist, she was actually just as interested in hip-hop as I was. So by that time, the Cambridge Medical students called me to give a lecture. I told Becky, well, this is what I do with the lecture. And that's how we basically started Hip Hop Psych. Now, in terms of what our objectives are, and sorry, it seems like a back to front. Our objectives are, one, we want to use hip hop lyrics for public mental health education. So that's the most important thing, really. So sometimes we do these talks just to pipe people's interest. Secondly, we're also interested in increasing recruitment into psychiatry. As I've said before, most medical students don't want to do psychiatry. And the other thing is, we've, we've spoken about culturally relevant stuff. The uptake of psychotherapy among ethnic minorities, among young people, is very, very poor. And we believe our work could potentially inform how to make psychotherapies relevant. And then, obviously, there's stuff for research, okay? So that's basically our objectives as, uh, in, in a go. Now, what I'm hoping to do today, just to give you guys an outline, is one, I'm going to tell you a bit about hip-hop culture. Because for you to understand about our work, you have to understand about hip-hop. So I'm going to do a whistle, almost a whistle-stop tour about hip-hop. Just a, a summary. I can see there's some um, people who are interested in hip-hop who might be able to help me out. 
I'll do that. Then we're basically going to show you what we do. You understand? And then hopefully we'll be finished. Now, if you like it, clap. If you don't like it, throw oranges or something. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's it. Uh, see, probably too quick for you. Okay. So, guys, hip hop. Let's start with hip hop. So, the first thing, guys, hip hop is not just about the music. Hip hop is a culture. Okay. There are five elements to hip hop. Okay. MCs, B boys, five elements of hip hop. Okay. Graffiti. Fantastic. Graffiti is one. What else? Pardon? Break dancing, b boying, or b gelling. Okay, what else? Knowledge. Knowledge, the most important aspect, which is yes. Okay. <laughs> MC now break dancing. So, so let's go. So graffiti, break dancing, DJing or turntablism. You understand? We've mentioned MC and the glue that holds it all together. Knowledge. And unfortunately, in a lot of hip hop lyrics, due to corporates taking over hip-hop unfortunately a lot of that knowledge is lost so it makes sense that we'll be using a program called hip-hop side so let's think about where hip-hop came from most people say that hip-hop came from south bronx but i'm going to challenge you that because i believe hip-hop started in africa because back in africa we had mcs how do i know we had mcs we've always had people like the grills in French West Africa, Senegal, Gambia, there were people who were basically talking about oral tradition. I am a Nigerian, I'm Yoruba, and we have this thing of oral tradition called Oriki. And Oriki basically is your family history. Now what's very, very interesting with Oriki, there's stuff that's factual and there's stuff that's fiction. So for my Oriki, there you find boastful elements about how my great-great-grandfather had many wives and how he had big eyes and his sex appeal with some of the ladies. Sorry, I know that's not sexist. So this had been existing long before hip-hop as we know. That tradition was taken through, through slavery to North America and also to the West Indies. So in the West Indies, they had Calypso where there was a lot of political stuff. And remember, even in Africa, the griots were extremely powerful. They were, they, 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 the politicians feared them. They told the oral tradition and politics and all that. Now, let's start with the well-known history that most people know, South Bronx. So think about South Bronx. So hip-hop, if we're talking about traditional hip-hop as we know it today, probably started around mid-70s. But their key dates, 1971 was a gang treaty. A, a person involved in that, a, a, a peacemaker among the gangs, was actually killed. So they had a peace treaty. And people began to look for another way. Very important. 1973, a DJ called DJ Cool Huck. DJ Cool Huck was a 16-year-old DJ from Jamaica. And he used to go around South Bronx. He lived at 1520 Cedric Avenue. And he used to go back blasting music from his speakers. He was the first one to introduce the breakbeat. What is the breakbeat? He realized that if you play two records, there was a part called The Breaks. Or if you've watched the Netflix um, documentary called The Get Down, um, the, the Get Down part, this was the part that was the most part where the break dancers would really dance and do their best dance steps. So he realized that by spinning both records, you could get the breaks. And hence, he was the, more or less the first DJ. Other influential members were African Bambata of the Zulu Nation. There's a scandal about him. You can read about it. But 
he was a former Black Spade gang member and he spoke about the elements and spoke about unity. Now at that time, back in the day, DJ was king. But also think about what was happening in the political environment. So that was the late 70s, early 80s, Regonomics. The hood was a horrible place. Disco was taking off. Punk was taking place on, on the other side of the Atlantic. There was turmoil. There was drugs on the street. There was a crack epidemic. You understand? Let's bear those things in mind. And unfortunately, disco wasn't catering to the urban youths. The disco was all cool. You had people like DJ Hollywood with the fly gears. You had Studio um, 54. But this wasn't a place where black people, predominantly black people and Hispanic, Hispanic people could go to. And by the way, let's remember, hip-hop is a predominantly black and Hispanic culture. Let's not try and erase that from the equation. Okay, so you have that there. As time goes on, hip-hop has developed from that stage to where it is today, a multi-billion industry. So what does that tell us? If we look at the hip-hop music, and hip-hop music, as Chuck D described it, is the CNN for black folk. Hip-hop music has always documented what happened on the streets, urban culture. At the moment, hip-hop is the predominant black culture. You guys need to listen to Kendrick Lamar's damn album and you tell me that's not good. You listen to a Chuck D album and even Rugged Man said, if you take Bob Dylan, who's been declared a Nobel um, laureate for literature, and you compare his lyrics to, 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 to Cool G Rap, Rugged Man said, bar for bar, Cool G Rap would destroy Bob Dylan. You could argue with it, but if you're talking about it, this is real talk, guys. But anyway, don't let me lose my train of thought. If you look at, at hip-hop, and this the Laney Foundation is so important, if you look at hip-hop, if you look into the lyrics, think about it. Poverty, drugs, um, fractured families, poverty. Those are the elements that produce vulnerability for mental health problems. But at the same time, look at where hip-hop has gone. You've got Jay-Z, you know, he's running his empire. You've got um, Baby from, 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 from Cash Money running in his empire. So you see both the seeds for vulnerability to mental health problems, but you also see the resilience. What else? Even for so-called ignorant rap, when a rapper like, um, like Meno is talking, when I think about my future, I envision um, Ferraris, I envision Obama. What's he doing? He's doing a process called positive visual imagery. We know in terms of affect, people can think in words, but people can also think in, 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 in terms of images. And positive visual imagery enables some of these rappers to really um, <coughs> conquer very, very difficult environments rather than imprison and aspire to be people. So guys, that's the essence of why we use hip-hop. Now, I'm going to demonstrate, and what we're going to do is we're going to use lyrics. When we do our talks, we've done talks in prisons, the prisoners get it, we've done a tour of, 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 of Canada, which we call the straight out of Cambridge tour. <laughs> you understand? Um, we, we, we've done talks in Youth Offenders, uh, Offenders Institute, the Park Youth Offenders Institute in Wales, 
and people get it, okay? So I'm just going to do a demonstration, but remember, I am bringing my own interpretation to the lyrics. So we're going to look at two sets of lyrics, and then we're going to show you some research, okay? You guys with me so far? Okay. So I'm going to do it in a curious case of Benjamin Button. I wanted to be artsy, you know, you know, be artsy. So I'm doing it in an unconventional way, but remember, I am claustrophobic. Okay, so I'm starting with Lady Heroine. I love this track. When this track came out, it came out from the movie Gridlocked. Anyone see Gridlocked? Okay, Gridlocked was a good movie because it featured the greatest MC. Well, maybe before, before Kendrick Lamar came on the scene. But in my opinion, the greatest MC is emblazoned on my, on my shirt. Tupac Amaru Shakur, the son of a former Black Panther. Born at a time when... A few months before he was born, his mother was indicted for a robbery, being a Black Panther. She defended herself and got off free. What Tupac gives you in his lyrics, and I'm going to discuss him later, but this isn't the lyrics by him, but since I'm discussing Tupac and my brain is scattered and I'm in the flow, I just got to keep on flowing like an MC. But, <laughs> but what Tupac gives you, you have that gangster stuff. Why? Because his mother at some point in time became addicted to crack, but you also have that Black Panther political message. But anyway, we're not talking about Tupac yet. But Lady Heroine, <laughs> Lady Heroine is from the soundtrack Gridlock. And Gridlock was about these two guys. It featured Tupac and Tim Roth. Yes, Tim Roth. And it basically looked at how they were heroin addicts and how they negotiated that whole medical insurance scheme in America to get treatment. And you know what America is like, okay? Now, what I like about the term Lady Heroine, I want us to think about it. Lady Heroine is a metaphor of a man and his relationship with drugs. Okay? <coughs> but the metaphor is a relationship between a man and his woman. So let's just bear that in mind. We're going to look through the lyrics and see what we find. Okay? Okay. Here it goes. Now it says, now when I first met her, met her was Lady Heroine. Okay, I was down in the dumps. This lyrics is by Jay Flex and it featured Lady of Rage. If you know Lady of Rage, and sorry, I get carried away. I just love hip hop so much. But <laughs> Lady of Rage was basically the first lady. She was a female MC in Death Row Records. Now, for those of you who know Death Row Records, you had to spit some gangster. I don't want to say shit. I just said it. But, I mean, you, she was a seasoned MC. But she sang the hook. But J-Flex, let's go. It says, now when I first met her, which is Lady Heroine, I was down in the dumps. Now, down in the dumps can refer to when people use drugs, sometimes there's social economic deprivation. Let's think about, for example, Glasgow. There was a time in Glasgow where people were addicted to Valium. And in fact, on the streets here in Glasgow, if people were addicted to Valium, which is diazepam, they actually called it Ansalis. So it's always important to know the street language of the drugs people use. But anyway, back to it, down in the dumps. Now I want you to go down to, that's when this fly honey, that's when this fly honey walked up to me. That's really interesting. Why is it interesting? Because this deals with the seduction element of drugs. A fly honey refers, for those who don't know, refers to a pretty, attractive girl. She walks up to me, a bit of flirtation. And often when drug use is recreational, it can be a bit pretty, pretty impulsive, and almost like a flirtation element. And it says that's when this fly honey walked up to me in a brown leather skirt. 
notice brown because on the streets heroin is called brown so that's the heroin a bit of flirtation um she sat on my lap more flirtation okay so it says so i took her to the crib sparked a blunt with it and hit it it was the bomb now let's break these links down one by one it says so i took her to the crib sparked a blunt with it and that refers to how he uses the heroin heroin can be smoked in a blunt but can also be smoked on a spoon if you watch train spotting you know you put it on the spoon you heat it up and there's this process called chasing the dragon where you inhale it or it can be sparked in a blunt but also remember it says it was the bomb who knows what that means it was the bomb in this context what does it mean <laughs> it's kind of really 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 good yeah <laughs> fantastic this refers to the euphoria but let's remember because heroin is acting on certain brain receptors called mu opioid receptors the euphoria is a sedate is a sedate euphoria and how do people using drugs sometimes mess with it have you heard of this process called speedballing in speedballing what people do is they mix crack cocaine with heroin and the aim is this, if you take crack cocaine, it gives you an abrupt high, almost uncomfortable high. You put heroin in and the high is almost, how would I say, almost a controlled high. So often when people use drugs, they use it together. So that's why they use it. So it says, hit it, um, hit it, it was the bomb, the euphoria. But then with every addiction, it sometimes, not with every addiction, but sometimes addictions start with recreational use, then it gets out of control. So it says, then, um, then all of a sudden she starts flipping her script talking about what have you done for lately. And I want you to read this line. She had me robbing and stealing. And sometimes an addiction progresses where you're in control. It's pretty. There's a lot of flirtation. It's impulsive. Then it becomes a more intractable use. Okay? And during this time, people start stealing to fund their habit. And that's why one of the... Theories about why we give methadone from a harm minimization point of view is that it reduces the chance that people would need to rob because it's got a longer half-life, it's cleaner and stuff like that. And it says, she had me robbing and stealing and ailing just to hit the skins. So just to hit the skins, what's that in street language? Because with hip-hop, you got to understand the language. What does that mean? Fantastic. Okay. Like Sheldon say, like Sheldon from Big Bang. So, okay, so guys, like Sheldon from Big Bang Theory would say, sexual intercourse. And sexual intercourse is a metaphor for injecting. This is why I like bars. I love MCs, man. Always flipping words. So it's a just to hit the skins, sexual intercourse. So he's gone from smoking it to injecting. Okay, guys, let's think about injecting. First of all, I've always been trained as do you share any of your injections? So when I'm taking a history from someone using drugs, I want to know how they use it. And people use all kinds of terms. People say things like, I slam it, which is injecting. Some people say, I bomb it, which is hiding it in a sheath. And if they're using these legal highs, which are no more legal, they might refer to plugging, which is inserted up the anus. Sorry for being crude, but that's how people use drugs. So people inject it. But you ask, do you share any injection equipment? So, Because some people don't share needles. They share spoons or water for injection. And the risk with that is if you're injecting it, sharing needles, there's a risk of hepatitis B, hepatitis C, and HIV. Does that make sense? So it's gone from smoking it 
to injecting it. And he said this, my friends tell me I shouldn't mess with these type of, I'm not going to say that that's an expletive, but just say we ain't dealing with no garden implement, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> just saying. Okay. Okay, back to my homeboy Tupac Shakur. Greatest MC, in my opinion, better than Biggie Smalls, better than Eminem. You know, there were rappers before Eminem, okay, guys? Let's be real. Okay? Okay. What I like about Tupac's lyrics, whenever people try and take Tupac out of the equation of being the greatest MC, they always mention, well, he ain't got no flow. Okay, fair enough. Joey Bada said, I would flame Tupac. What Tupac gives you is that raw emotion. What Tupac gives you is that vibe from the street. What Tupac gives you is that political stuff. And I will prove it, okay? So we've got this track, Death Around the Corner. This was from Tupac's album, um, Me Against the World. Really, really good album. When I was in medical school, used to bump this stuff all day long. <laughs> you know? So, okay? Now, this is the first stuff. This lyrics open up with a skit. So guys, before you read, let me just tell you about it so you don't get confused. Normally I play music, but I'm a little bit nervous. I want to control things. So there are three people in this skit. There's a man who is extremely paranoid looking out of the window. You've got his partner and you've got his young son. So I repeat it. So there's a man paranoid looking out of the window with his AK. You understand? There's his partner and there's a young son. So it starts with this. Why are you by the window? What's wrong, daddy? That's the son. So the son realizes daddy isn't okay. He's looking out of the window. And this is what his partner says. I know what's wrong with that crazy MF. He just stand by the G-dam. Sorry, I'm a born again Christian. I can't say that. He stands by the G-dam window with the effing AK all day. He doesn't work. He doesn't make love. Um, and he doesn't do a G-dam thing. Okay, so guys, let's think this. For me, I'm wondering what is happening here. Okay, here's my interpretation. This guy is paranoid. Now, whatever is happening, his partner doesn't share that paranoia. But you know something is wrong because something is gripping. This guy is by the window, looking out of the window, so paranoid that he has a firearm with a young child and his partner, which isn't a good situation. Now, guys, I'm not going to label all this on mental health problems because we know... People with mental health problems are more vulnerable than risk to others. But let's just stay with this theme, okay? So he's by the window every day. Now, there are three ways of looking at this. Whenever you get this situation, always ask, is this true? Why could it be true? Well, Tupac from LA, Gangland, LA, might have been involved in some shady deals. Maybe people are after him. Possibility, isn't it? It is a possibility. Other possibility is... This brother is paranoid, okay? Why do we think that might be the case? Because his partner who lives with him and knows him doesn't share the same suspicion, but he's gripped. So let's, guy, let's go for the possibility of him being paranoid. Maybe there's the possibility that this brother here has paranoid delusions, okay? So the next question is, why does he have paranoid delusions? One of the theories of, about paranoid delusions is that people become have paranoid delusions you understand, as a form of psychosis when there is the overproduction of a molecule called dopamine. Everyone say dopamine. 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 Okay. What does dopamine do? Dopamine codes for salience. So what that means 
is when my dopamine is being produced normally and released into the striatal area. When it's produced normally, I look at this brother's red shirt. I'm like, okay, dopamine being produced. Okay, that's a red shirt. It's a nice shirt. And I move on. When the dopamine is being produced excessively, you understand, I start developing um, aberrant saliences. So this red shirt turns from a cold piece of information to a hot, all-grabbing piece of information. And often, when patients develop psychosis, it starts with this thing called delusional atmosphere, where there's something about this, there's something going on, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And over time, it crystallizes to a belief. So it's like, damn, that red shirt, red Manchester United, red devils, he must be a devil. Does that make sense? The excessive produ production of dopamine produces aberrant saliences. Often, the first thing, it, well, not often, sometimes it can start with what is known as the Truman sign. If, if any of you have watched the Truman, the Truman Show by Jim Carrey, first thing tr um, 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 the Truman, Truman has is that there's something uncanny going on, but he can't figure it out. But the moment he knows he's in a film show, which in Truman's case was true, um, there is relief. So sometimes the delusions create relief. They create relief like, okay, now I know this red shirt is from the devil. So I got to be watching him. I got to be watching him. So that's the first thing. Back in the day, when I started medical school, we were told delusions are completely ununderstandable. Ladies and gentlemen, that's a lie from the pits of hell. Why do I know that? <laughs> it's true. Why do I know that? Because delusions and psychosis occur within a context. So you find more delusions about witches in Africa. If you go to Canada, it would be about the Royal Mountain Police. And you know, back in the day, they always used to have things like delusions about the KGB. How many of those do we have? Nowadays, if you ask the young folk, delusions about the Illuminati, you know, and stuff like that. So it evolves. And delusions occur within a context because you're picking up these vibes. In terms of your apparent saliences are... Uh, are built around the experiences you have. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, I've made all this song and dance about delusions, but let's go on. So it says, I see death around the corner. Gotta stay high. Will I survive in the city where the skinny, I'm not going to use the N-word, where the skinny brothers die. Why is that important? One thing about psychosis, if we assume it's psychosis, is there's this theory called social defeat model of psychosis. And the social defeat model of psychosis is based on work done by Selton and Cantor Gray. And their theory is this, is that if you notice, there's an increased prevalence of psychosis in urban areas. Okay. There are also some beliefs, and I'm not going to state whether it's true, that you have an increase in psychosis among second generation African Caribbean group. Now, there are many theories. One of the, some people say it might be misdiagnosis or stuff. But let's look at this social defeat model. So with social defeat model, what they say is that if you're in an environment where you're considered as the outsider or the subordinate, you're more likely to have a hypersensitive dopamine transmission in a certain area in your brain called the striatal area. Does that make sense? How do we know this? Animal work shows that if you put a rodent in a cage, so you've got the, you've got the, you've got the cage rodent who is like homeboy chilling in the corner in the cage, and then you introduce some vulnerable intruder rodent. The intruder rodent comes in and immediately the cage rodent attacks it and the intruder rodent has to take up a submissive um, stance. 
if you look at their brain, there's increased production of dopamine. So does that make sense why you have, could that explain why if you look at certain areas, particularly among, so, so if you say among second generation African Caribbeans, people that, have, that were born in this country grew up, you understand, with the discrimination still being as subordinate, still being seen as inferior, could this explain these increases? I don't have the answers, but I'm just saying maybe that can explain some of the psychosis. Because when you look at the rates of psychosis, say in Africa or if you look in the Caribbean, they are not higher than for these ones. And it's often among the second generation African Caribbeans. But then again, we can't rule out things like misdiagnosis, lack of social support and stuff like that. Okay. So it then says, I see death around the corner um, any day trying to keep it together. No one lives in a hurry. I'll move on to the next one. So it says, it says, I guess I seen too many murders. The doctors can't help me. Okay. I guess I seen too many murders. The doctors can't help me. So I've banged the drum of psychosis over and over again. Is there the possibility that this guy, rather than have psychosis, could he have something like post-traumatic stress disorder? Because if, if you think about living in a gangland area where people see a lot of violence, he said he's seen a, a, um, he's seen a lot of murders. We know with post-traumatic stress disorder, some of the symptoms you have are things like hypervigilance, you're hyperaroused, which he seems to be the case. And it might be they seen too many murders are flashbacks. And sometimes when we don't clarify psychopathology, we might assume things are visual hallucinations when they're actually flashbacks. So, you know, people that go to Afghanistan, they, they sometimes, uh, they will be here and something goes off like a noise and they will say, it takes me right back. And they say, I can experience the smells. I can see the sights. I can hear the gun whistles and stuff. So could be he be experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder. And guys, we need to think about it. When people come from Syria and you have all this narrative of asylum seekers coming here to take our benefits, you know, we've got to think about some of these kind of issues going on. You understand? Now, the other thing it says is, let's move on now. Okay? So it says, run out of Indo and my mind can't take the stress. Okay, so the next question to all you hip-hop fans, street lingo, what does Indo mean? Come on, it's weed. <laughs> Indo is weed. <coughs> so if you guys know that song by Snoop Doggy Dog, rolling down the street, smoking Indo, sipping on gin and... Okay, some of you <laughs> might not know that. Yeah, <laughs> with my mind on my money. On. <laughs> okay, so, but guys, let's break this down. It says, run out of Indo and my mind can't take the stress. Wait, wait, hold on a minute. Run out of Indo and my mind can't take the stress, which means the stress, paranoia, he's managing it with weed, with cannabis. Now, I'll be honest, Linda, a lot of my patients tell me that. I'm like, your cannabis is making you psychotic and delusional. No, it's not. It helps me with my delusions. Then I'm like, it's making you paranoid. No, it's not. You understand? <laughs> so just hold, on. just hold on to this thought because we have to listen to what our patients say. You understand? Okay. So just hold on to that. Okay. Let's go on to the, 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 next, the next one. Okay. So when we were kids, just forget. So go to the one, two, three, four. I see death around the corner. The pressure's getting to me. I no longer trust my homies. Brother is paranoid, okay? Then 
try to do try um them phonies try to do me smoking too much weed got me paranoid wait wait a minute wait 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 a minute wait wait stressed um stress pack i get at my vest under my clothes when i dress so it's got a bulletproof thing wait wait a minute there seems to be a contradiction because homeboy earlier was talking about how he smoked cannabis to manage his paranoia but now homeboy be talking about how his weed and cannabis is making him paranoid how do we resolve this well it makes sense why because it depends on the type of cannabis you smoke in it <laughs> let me break this down we know from research cannabis has different psychoactive agents one of the agents is delta 9 tetrahydrocannabinol thc now that stuff will make anyone you know paranoid the more thc you have in the cannabis particularly in skunk that's why skunk is so messed up because with skunk genetically modified to produce a high thc the more thc you have the more likely you are get likely to get psychotic anxious and cause cognitive impairment however there's another agent of cannabis called cannabidiol cannabidiol is actually anxiolytic it's actually antipsychotic and there's even a research group in london looking at cannabidiol so it depends on the type of cannabis you smoke often with skunk you have an increased amount of thc and that's why it increases psychosis and unfortunately a lot of the cannabis sold today has that but if you look back in you know in jamaica where there's where some of the rastafarians are smoking the herbs or resine there is more cannabidiol and less thc does that make sense so i would argue that depending <coughs> on the type of cannabis he smokes that would determine whether he gets paranoid or whether it helps him okay that's just my own interpretation but guys let's think about spice brothers and sisters we have to talk about spice because spice is causing devastation in our communities i don't know about <laughs> glasgow but if you've seen the documentary on bbc in manchester among the homeless community brothers are going around like zombies you understand so what is sin spice is a kind of synthetic cannabis so it's built by clever chemi um, chemist um and it imitates cannabis why is cannabis so why is spice so dangerous because one if you think thc is bad spice actually so other other synthetic cannabis other than spice are black mamba and annihilation you understand but what spice does spice has 50 to 300 times more affinity for cannabinoid one receptors than thc now i've already said thc really hits you hard but imagine something which is 50 to 300 times more likely to bind with it even with small amount it's likely to bind so obviously with, with, with spice you find things there where they're paranoid they can be psychotic and there's also the risk of seizures and problems with heart so spice is bad for the streets okay then we'll move on now now what i'm going to do now is move on to i like to look at early adverse experiences so there's one thing about patients presenting with mental health problems not all the time sometimes what you find out is when you look at their early adverse experiences life has dealt them a cruel hand so it says i was raised in the city i've already told you being born in an urban area increases the risk of psychosis okay might be to due to social def defeat might be due to the pressures and stuff shitty ever since i was an itty bitty kitty and it says Drinking liquor out my mama's 
I'm not gonna say titty. Sorry, I just did. I wanted to say mammary glands. I, I wanted to say mammary glands. I didn't want to say titty. But it says drinking liquor out my mommy's titty. Now, if we are to take this literally, you understand? Then this is a guy when he's young. His mother was drinking when, when he was young. So let's think about the effect of alcohol on his brain because. Often with mental disorders, sometimes when you have early adverse experiences, it can affect the brain and set the seeds for the risk of mental problems. And he says, and smoking weed was an everyday thing in my household. So homeboy at an early age is being exposed to secondhand cannabis smoke. And also let's think about genetic risk. His dad smoked weed, he smoked weed, you understand? And stuff like that. But also let's think about this thing called epigenetics. Everyone say, Epigenetics. epigenetics. Does anyone know what epigenetics is? Okay. Well, any of the layman's version. No, please, let's hear about that. How the genes in our environment interact with each other and that, that can carry on through generations as well. Okay, good, good, good. Okay, so guys, let me just break it down. So, when people live in cruel environments, we've got genes. Genes set the seed for the risk for mental health problems are protect. Now, when Envi certain environments, either a nurturing or a risk environment, can either increase the risk of mental disorders or protect against it. Now, what epigenetics involves is their chemical tags, they tag to certain genes, and they in increase the activity of risk genes. So you can increase the risk gene of post-traumatic stress disorder or psychosis or depression, or increase the risk gene that makes your stress pathway in your brain over-overactive. You understand? A nurturing environment might protect against that. Does that make sense? Now, the issue about whether they can be transmitted is controversial because you've got two schools of thought. You've got the Darwinians that say, hell no, epigenetic modifications cannot be transmitted. And you've got the Lamarckians. So it's almost like the East Coast, West Coast people. <laughs> yes, it can be transmitted. There was a lady called Yehuda that did some experiments where she, she looked at Jewish people from the Holocaust and other Jewish families, those ones that were exposed, and she claimed it could be transmitted. But they're all controversies. So if anyone asks you about whether epigenetics can be tran transmitted down from generations, that's the paper to read, Yehuda. Mm -hmm. But that's enough. Okay, so guys, I'm going to um, basically stop there. Okay, any questions so far? Sorry, I know I'm moving on fast, but if we move on fast... Okay, now let's go back. Okay, so guys, I'm going to take you back to some research we did. Oh, sorry. Yes, please do. Yes, please do. One is if you have had the choose your weed conversation with anyone and how that went. Sorry, the... I'm saying choose your weed, as in discussing Tupac's lyrics and then getting into the complexity of how to choose. How to choose. You're going to smoke, you're going to smoke, but how to choose what you smoke so it has... No, it, it, okay, yes, yeah, so first question, it's very controversial, but in, for those who, of you who've worked with drug addicts, often, you have to remember, even smoking, resting, or herbs, they're risks. First of all, how do you know you're getting what you smoke? It's difficult to know. And the honest truth is, a lot of weed smoke nowadays is skunk anyway. The other thing is, the other risk with cannabis as a whole, cognitive impairment, you, you, you know, the risk of cognitive impairment, the risk of being addicted to cannabis, there's the risk of, of cancers and stuff like that. So sometimes I always ask my patients, 
you know, what type of cannabis do you smoke? And 99% of the time, they say skunk. Or some will say, well, I don't smoke skunk. Then I'm like, how do you know what you're smoking? And they can't tell me. So some people advocate harm minimization that, look, if you're smoking skunk, why don't you smoke, the, you know, the herb or resin? But I'm not going to say which way I've fallen, but I guess the problem with that is how are they sure what they're getting? If they show what they're getting, then looking at the research, in terms of the risk of psychosis, the risk is less. And there's research to show that. Okay? Okay, sorry, your second question. And then my second question is going to be, I'm just thinking about how this translates out of a patient-centered yes. patient yes. environment into pre-patient. Yes, no, absolutely. So I work a lot in, in areas of high social deprivation. Yes, yes. Um, yes. So I'm using patients, but this could apply to anyone. But I'm yeah. also wondering, so with those conversations, yes. so the whole drinking liquor for my mama's yes. whatever, I work in environments where that is the absolute norm as mm. first her July phase, yes. I present that lyric, and it just affirms a generation's yes. lifestyle. Absolutely. Um, so the first thing I have to do is actually breach the notion that that's not necessarily the norm. And it's not necessarily a healthy life choice mm. to be a drinking mother. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yes, yes. I mean, I, I guess it's about taking a non judgmental approach, but we're not covering it here. There's some things we look at is about if you know I'm at risk factor. So if I know I have a history of, like, in my, it, okay, let's think about physical health problems. I know in my family there's a there's a risk of early deaths, heart attacks, mental health problems. I'm being I'm being serious. Strokes, diabetes. Now what I do, I love Nando's. I can eat Nando's every day. I eat like a pig. So what I choose, I choose environments that are protective. So first thing, I'm a born again Christian, which means I'm staying away from drugs and all that. You know, so I I deliberately choose those protective environments and also maybe to help with epigenetics. And secondly, for me, I choose to exercise and skip. So for those people that nature has dealt a cruel hand, sometimes these lyrics, you know, it's like, oh, then what can I do? But it's a case of telling people that they've got a choice to choose protective environments. Does, does, does that make sense? Because we know for, for these kind of people, they're more likely to develop mental disorders earlier so it's a case of okay what can you do about it we're not just and that's why i'm always looking at the gene environment interplay we've discussed some of it being involved in the arts you know <laughs> being involved in and linda and i've had that discussion about okay what can i do can i go to an after youth club can i work with this so knowing so how does it translate is knowing okay i might be at risk factors for mental disorders what can i do what protective environments can i choose so I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, kind of. I think I'm still at the stage before that where I work with, with some young people who can't even get their head around the fact that is a risk. Yes. Or that is a bad thing because that is their entire experience no, absolutely. of the world. And yes. it's such a norm. Yes, yes. Actually, there's that factor. <coughs> yes. And I see the absolute positive application of quoting Tupac like the Bible. Uh, yes, yes. <laughs> but to them, it actually confirms this norm that they have. No, absolutely. Has a no, 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 no. But, yes, but, but the thing is, guys, let's, 
this is the problem. You know, this whole debate about conscious and what's conscious hip-hop, what's gangster hip-hop, I don't make the distinction. There's whack hip-hop and there's, there's dope hip-hop. <laughs> Guys, you could take a Fetty Wap trap queen and I can flip it and I can educate you. People hide behind conscious hip-hop when their hip-hop is whack, I'm sorry. And if this informs you, I would sit down. So I, I'm not saying use it. I'm saying this is what we use. And for our YouTube videos, we do it. And I think it's about educating them. You're not going to convert them. Motivational interviewing, you start at a stage and over time you chip away. Does that make sense? Yeah. You understand? So sorry, your question and then we've got uh, to move on. I was, just, I was just going to make the point when you were, that point about what cannabis to choose. Yes. It's interesting that um, Tupac was always an advocate for using cannabis and said that actually reduced uh, yes. social issues. Mm. But when he went to prison for that sort of six months, yes. you know, in the earlier interviews that he was in there, that was when he was at his most vulnerable and he yes. lost. It was when he wrote, hit him up. And, yes, and like he that. was paranoid. He, 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 came, paranoid. he came out of that place. He, <laughs> he was a changed man. Yeah. But about three months later or four months later, we had an interview with him and he was completely clean at this point. Yes. And they asked him about his view on it. And he said that was the addict speaking. Mm. That was mm. a quote from Dupac. Mm. So he actually, at that point, had completely changed his views mm. on Absolutely. usage of cannabis yeah. at all. Yeah. Okay, okay. So guys, the next one. This is a paper we we publish in Journal of Public Mental Health. We're gonna put it on our website. Hope we don't get sued. <laughs> oh, but anyway. Um. So basically, what we did was how how many of you have heard of a tool called Rap Genius? Oh man, go and check, check, just Google Rap Genius. But anyway, what you can do is we wanted to look at hip-hop lyrics. So Rap Genius is just a tool. You can do like searches on words used in hip-hop based on all the hip-hop songs. So we, what we did was we did a rap word frequency for medical terms for drugs. And we looked at how it was used in hip-hop. Then we also used street names. However, for something like crack, crack cocaine is used both on the streets and medical terms. So if you notice, we looked at things like, if you look at the red, that's crack. Um, we look, white is cocaine. And what you notice is you notice a steady trend in hip-hop, you understand? But what's interesting is when you start using language on the streets, you see some interesting changes. Okay, here's my interpretation. Knowing what I know about the hip-hop culture and what was happening, Here's my interesting, um, interesting conversation. So let's look at crack. It's interesting because if you look at 19, if you look at say 1990s, crack, there was a crack epidemic from the 70s through to the 80s to the early 90s and stuff. You see a certain spike there, but then it comes down because as hip hop becomes a more, how will I say, as hip hop becomes more, ingrained in society as rappers become more affluent they're not speaking as much about crack as before although they haven't said that there's a trap movement where people like young Jeezy are talking about selling crack and stuff like that so just bear that in mind okay we look at weed weed 1990s that era 1995 if you remember albums like the chronic Dr. Dre, Snoop Doggy Dog, Cypress Hill, they were all talking about the chronic, which is, which is a slang for weed. And so there's a spike there. And with weed, weed has always been a hip-hop um, drug. So we're not surprised that we have um, spikes and troughs. Okay? Now I want you to look at some interesting trends. Crunk. Who knows what crunk is? Crunk is a movement that started from in the South. 
Anyone knows what Kronk is? Okay. So Kronk stands for crazy drunk. Okay. And basically there was a Kronk movement where the beats were, it was really like turned up music, electronic bass and, and stuff like that. But in terms of the drink, it's when you combine Red Bull with Hennessy. Does anyone know this song by Elephant, um, by Beanie Man? We're drinking Henny and Red Bull. <laughs> okay, sorry, no dance hall fans here. But basically the aim is you drink a... Having the Red Bull keeps you sharp so you can knock more pints back. Now, this thing is not just restricted to hip-hop. I mean, loads of our youths do it. You find them with this monster, which only God knows how much caffeine is in. But they knock back all this alcohol. They're more likely to have unprotected sex and do dumb stuff because they think the Red Bull is neutralizing it. But that's what it's, it stands for. Okay, I want you to look at Molly. Molly is very, very interesting. And you see... A spike. If you notice, generally it's low, but then you see a sudden spike here. Now, what is Molly? Who knows what Molly is? MDMA. Yes, <laughs> Molly is MDMA ecstasy. You understand? Molly is white folk drugs. Sorry for that. <laughs> <laughs> you understand? Let's be honest. But what you notice is you notice there's a spike around here, 2000, and there was this movement in the Bay Area by a guy called MacDre. MacDre had this thing called the fist movement and in this movement they they were just doing all kinds of crazy stuff where you'd flap your hands and lots of suburban youth white folk were into it you pop your molly they'll play the rap music and you just see some of the storm it's like what you do in ecstasy everyone is one and you know what ecstasy does apparently ecstasy is supposed to increase oxytocin which is a pro-affiliative pro-social um hormone so everyone is together and happy ever after but if you notice here, it shoots up here. And this is because hip-hop has changed from being a predominantly black and Hispanic thing to being global. All these white folk, most consumers of hip-hop now are white folk. And white folk spend money. So you've got to cater to that market. So Molly, so people like Wiz Khalifa, Danny Brown, um, um, Juicy J are all rapping about these kind of things. And so we've seen a spike in, in that. The only thing I want to talk about is Sizzop. Who knows what Sizzop is? Okay. Fantastic. Okay. So, guys, I, I did some teaching in Hong Kong. Over there, cats use cough mixture. Imagine how gangster that is, you know. <laughs> Going, oh, oh, I need some cough mixture, you know. It's, it's, you understand? But in the southern part of United States of America, there's this whole thing called Sizzop. And Sizzop is like the brother said, it's cough mixture. It's got promethazine and it's got codeine. Now codeine is an opiate a bit like heroin and Lil, Lil Wayne supposedly was abusing it. Now the way it, it goes is this thing sedates you and it makes you high and it put all interesting things. So it's also called sizzle and lean. They put some soda in it or we say soft drink and it looks purple and they have this thing called double cupping. So you go, you know, you've, you've got your double cups and you knock it back to front. One of the exponents of that was a guy called DJ Screw. Now what was interesting is, if you listen to DJ Screw movement, it was a very slow down, anti-turn-up kind of beat. So it almost seems as if the music he's making is like music if it had taken the drug. You understand? And in the hip-hop community, we've had three major deaths of 
they've all been by Southern artists. Pimp C, Big Mo, and on what? What was the other one? Pimp C, Big Mo, not Big Pond. Um, Big Mo, Pimp C, DJ Screw, DJ Screw. They all died from. They all died from it. So you would see it now. What's interesting with with Sizzop, I suspect that this will go up because at the moment in hip hop music, southern hip hop is dominating. You've got the Migos rapping. You've got all you've got all these southern MCs who are rapping. So what does this tell us? Okay, you could dismiss it, but what this tells us is we we can see trends. I think hip hop music, popular music, can teach us a lot of things really if we are open to it you understand and these are trends when i have the i had this discussion with people at the association of university teachers of psychiatry they had never heard of lean they had never heard of scissor they, they were never aware of these trends so hip-hop can teach us a lot of things any questions so far because i want to okay how do i get this thing off now okay <laughs> okay now Guys, the final piece. This is just me being indulgent, yeah, okay? J. Cole. <laughs> J. Cole, I guys, I just want you to listen to these lyrics and we'll finish because I just think these lyrics are explanatory. And I think why when, when, when we do our when we do our talks, I think this is good because it basically talks about decisions people make and emotions. And you're not going to get better emotions than this lost ones. Who's heard this track, lost ones? Oh man, man. Sorry, be prepared to be blown away. You would have heard it. You would have heard it. Rose, you would have heard it, I'm sure. Okay, ready. Get involved, motherfucker. Trying to take away a life. Is you God, motherfucker? I don't think. 
Okay, guys, I, I, I always throw this one in because you might ask what has it got to relate to mental health. I think for me, it's about the emotions, it's about the decisions. And I know it's obvious, and that's why I played. I don't think you need to be a hip-hop fan. I think the lyrics are straightforward. But you get the boys, the guy's perspective, you get the woman's perspective, and you get that whole peer pressure thing. And I think when we, when we do talks like in prison or with young folk, they absolutely get it. But I need to make it clear, we've done talks like this in Wales to a, a group of old-age pensioners. And what you find, if they can get beyond the language, it's just as useful. In the sense that we just said, okay, here's a poet from Wales, and this was a poet doing horrorcore poetry. And we're like, okay, this is what he said. Now Eminem said this. And it's interesting because once they open up, they're arguing, well, in my opinion, Eminem didn't mean this. <laughs> okay. So guys, that's me done. Please, guys, follow us on Twitter. We've got a lot of resources on our website. We've got YouTube videos. And I would say share it. I'm not saying we're not claiming that this would treat psychosis or depression like the press covered. But we think it's, it's, I use it as a way of opening up conversations. And if people are talking about mental health, it's a good thing. Mm. Thank you.